Welcome to Soul Talk number five, a podcast where we explore issues of the heart and the soul within a framework of faith in Christ and his life for, in, and through ours. Today, we're going to chat around an idea of relational refugee, if you will. While a refugee refers to a displaced person who has been forced out of their home country to escape danger or persecution, adding relational to that refugee idea allows us to explore kind of the idea of a person without a true home relationally. And gosh, I know so very many of you, of us, can relate to this concept immediately. Relational homelessness. I think many of us can feel this way in our souls for a wide variety of reasons. And unless we stop and explore that restlessness, that longing, that void, it's going to churn away inside us. And we might misinterpret it in a whole host of different ways. From God is not meeting my needs to I'm not doing enough or being enough or good enough to others like my friends and family are letting me down. Yeah, so... That's just a teaser to get your thoughts going. But I first must bring you to the man who said, hey, let's talk about this idea when we get together. So to that end, I have such appreciation that the brother I sit with today is a deep wealth of knowledge on more friends than I could ever hope to explore. His life is rich with experience and therefore his soul rife with wisdom. All praise to God, actually. He is a powerhouse for the kingdom of God who conducts himself as a continual learner, a seeker, and one who leads with quietness and humility. So you'll not find him trying to make a name for himself, though he has plenty to do just that very thing. (laughs) Instead, you will find him always trying to make a pathway for the unity of God's body in whatever form possible. He leverages his massive brain and gift set for the purposes of bringing churches together to advance the gospel in more efficacy, love, and clarity. I couldn't be more honored or thrilled to get to introduce you all to doctor and reverend and doctor and all sorts of degreed, uh, Kevin Dudley. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> he is the husband to beautiful firecracker Gail for 29 years, and they have two children, Dominic and Alec. Alex, I think. Uh, Kevin has his demon from Ashland, his PhD, ABD from the consortium in Chicago. Uh, he's got an MDiv in systematic theology. Uh, he's got his bachelor's in business. I mean, this is an educated and varied man. He has pastored various congregations for the last 24 years. He's taught seminary for 16 years and on and on. And he is presently the executive director of Catalyst, an organization that he's going to enlighten us about shortly. Uh, When Kevin and I tried to narrow in all the possibilities of what issues of the soul we could discuss, he offered this idea of being a relational refugee citing that it might have some relevance for his life as a black man growing up in a single-parent household, operating predominantly in a white world, that it applies for himself and African Americans emotionally, psychologically, historically. So, aren't you so excited to hear from Dr. Dudley with those particular ingredients of his person for such a time as this in our world? I am. Not to mention that he started in his young adult life, I just found this out, by serving in law enforcement in Atlanta, Georgia, before God called him to ministry. Wow, wow, wow. So, welcome, Kevin. We're so incredibly thrilled for this opportunity to be together with you. Grateful for you. Thank Mm. you for Mm -hmm. having me. In fact, I need to take you everywhere I go. (laughs) You started off. (laughs) So, before we talk about, you know, Kevin before today, Would you do us a favor and tell us a bit about the Kevin of today? You know, what you're up to primarily in Catalyst, but anything, you know, what God's using you for and what God's using that ministry for and your passions there and wherever. Just tell us what you want. Absolutely. Well, one thing, I've been chewing on this idea that there is no better time for us to be the church. Mm -hmm. And I have uh, been carrying for a while such a great burden that man, if the church could just get around to being the church united and walking in step with one another, uh, this world would be radically different. And so the group that I work with, uh, Catalyst for Columbus, and uh, there are a number of other organizations that we've partnered with over the years, but 
what we're after is to find a way for the body of Christ in Columbus, Ohio, to really be united and to really serve together, to mm. collaborate, uh, communicate, and uh, let loose the very power of God in the city to change lives and to do it together. Uh, so that's what, what we're up to. I have a phenomenal team that they've been walking with us for years as well. We've been very intentional about uh, helping to raise up some of our next gen and younger leaders. We have a, a number of seasoned fellows that are walking with us, and I, it's just a great time. And so I, I've been overjoyed because this really brings together all of my worlds over many years. Hmm. Mm. Gosh, for such a time as this is what comes to my mind. It's so inspiring. It's wonderful. And I'll be honest, I think that my personal longing for unity in the body, I don't know if this is because of my age um, or because of what's going on in our world, but honestly, my personal longing for unity in the body is at its highest peak ever in my lifetime. Hmm. So this work of God through you all and all who join you in this effort is just, it just moves me so. Okay. So total sidebar, Kevin, but speaking of longing, you also mentioned to me when I asked about possible topics, possibly discussing your addictions Mm -hmm. (laughs) to cars, your addictions to computers, and your addictions to warm chocolate chip cookies with walnuts. Uh, So when you say something like the word addiction to a doctor in psychology, you might want to be careful about that. So I wanted to do, listeners, what I decided I wanted to do that I'm springing on Kevin right now, is I wanted to do a small experiment real time today, exploring the pull of competing passions. Mm. I too love warm chocolate chip cookies with walnuts, (laughs) and I never get to make them in my home as no one in my family prefers walnuts. So right now, Alicia is bringing in this moment some of my homemade chocolate chip cookies with walnuts right now. Warm. So the listeners, we have the chance to see which pull of Kevin's is greater. Alicia has just sat them down on the table in front of Kevin. His admitted addiction to said cookies or his passion for the unity of body and our continued discussion. We'll all be watching and listening closely, Kevin. Dr. Tammy Smith. (laughs) And, and and you don't know this, but tomorrow is my birthday. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday to me. Oh, so I just wanted to see what a consummate <laughs> professional you are, Dr. Dudley. So good luck, my friend. Okay. Oh, this is great. So back on track. I do love your passion as displayed through your ministry and catalyst. And as I think we see in all great God stories... When we plumb more into your particular past, we can see how God has uniquely equipped you and teed you up particularly for this type of mentoring, equipping, networking, unifying, building, you know, work. And certainly something that is your personal experience is also part of what you work both with and against, I'm certain, as you labor in your spheres of influence, which is what you brought forward to me as a potential topic for us, this idea of being a relational refugee. So would you introduce the listener to that concept and acquaint us with your understanding of it and working with it a bit? Absolutely. Um, And I can, I guess, start by saying, you know, being human is hard and being in relationship is equally as hard. And so for those of us who maybe haven't had what some would call normative upbringings or uh, normative family contexts, the idea of healthy relationship is uh, sometimes a challenge, but always a weight and a burden that one carries. Mm. So years ago, I uh, happened on this phrase as I uh, picked up a book by Edward Wimberly, who is a, a professor, retired professor of pastoral care down in Atlanta. He wrote a book entitled Relational Refugees, and I couldn't resist uh, picking it up because the idea is that there are many people who find that they either don't have roots or their roots are strained or they're estranged from people or uh, they find, like like I have over the years, that I, I don't, just don't seem to fit mm. any one place. Mm, mm, mm. Um, they find that, you know, it's just a struggle to get to a place where one feels like one uh, truly belongs. And so that's the, the context, and uh, maybe I'll amplify that even more mm. because... Uh, especially in the current climate that we're in, 
um, with the racial um, mm-hmm. stress and tension. Uh, the African-American experience in this country is one that an entire group of people mm-hmm. has experienced uh, being relational refugees with a country that, uh, you know, and I'm not minimizing any of the positive and high moments, but for all intents and purposes, it's been a struggle over uh, many centuries mm. to try to get to the place where uh, a group of people feels like they belong. So both at the personal and interpersonal level, but also at the communal and historical levels, this is so uh, important for me. Yeah. So you said this phrase, those from a non-normative family context always carry a weight and a burden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm so critical, maybe that's a harsh word, but the picturesque Norman Rockwell, American dreamy kind of idea where you've got mommy, daddy, two kids, two and a half kids, two cars, dog, cat, white picket fence. You know, that's the illusion, I think, that many people have been presented with. Mm. And the truth of the matter is, I don't know too many people who have, you know, that, I I wouldn't even call it a picture of perfection because it's not perfect. But for me, there are so many other healthy ways that family can be family, Mm. that community can be community. And um, we often... Uh, disregard that. I was in a conversation with uh, someone not long ago, and uh, somebody in the evangelical camp, you know, because fatherlessness is one of those areas that people lift up. And I got to thinking, and I said, man, there's a phrase or a word by Christina Cleveland. Uh, She says, let's not talk so much about fatherlessness without also talking about motherfulness. Because there are ways that God counteracts whatever brokenness and raises the stakes so that people can find what they need. So there's so much more to what it means. Wait, slow that down. She says the ways that God counteracts the brokenness and raises the stakes. Yes. In in that, so where you may not have a father in the home, Mm -hmm. but you've got a mother who pulls double duty and mm. connects with others in the community. So mm. you've got a village raising a child. Mm-hmm. So the fatherlessness is less of an issue unless you're looking at a very strict formula for what things ought to be. Mm-hmm. So I, I find myself spending more time not on what ought to be, but the value and the beauty and the power that God can bring into what is. Mm-hmm. And so all of that for me underlies that sense of, of uh, being relational refugee. Mm-hmm. And again, both personally and uh, academically and every other way that mm-hmm. I've looked at this. And before, you know, I want to explore a little bit about that for you personally, would you do me a favor and just tell us, if you can, a way in which you've seen a church handle this idea of presenting a non-normative context uh, picture well? Have you seen a church do it well? Because I know you've seen a lot of churches do it not well. I and have. And even unwittingly, yeah. put forward lots and lots of suggestions and sure, yeah. Anyhow, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't want to disregard that. Yeah, there are many examples of brokenness in our communities, but my experience in the historic Black Church has been just phenomenal. Uh, it's so gracious and so grace giving and so loving, so affirming um, with people, and so even in the church where I'm kind of helping out, uh, doing some teaching right now. The folks are just so loving, and they see the gaps in the mm. relationship, and they just go right at it. And, you know, when you know some things that may be off, and your heart is such that you're concerned about the people that are part of that community, it, it happens. So, really, honestly, every uh, church that I've been a part of, I've seen this uh, played out. Maybe not, you know, at mass scale, but... There have always been instances of people who step to the table and who exemplify what it means to be family, what it means to be community. So if you were to turn that into a teaching or a loving exhortation, it would be if you see the gaps, see the gaps and move into the gaps. That's good. And, And I'll magnify that even more. If you see it, it's because God let you see it, yeah. which means perhaps you may have the giftedness and the capacity to make a difference. Yeah. 
And because you were kind enough to let me in a little little bit on your story, I know that what you speak of is part of your own story. So why don't you tell us about being from a single-parent home? Certainly that does play into your identification with the phrase relational refugee. Do you mind talking us through your history a bit? Yeah, sure. And I'll give you the kind of shortened version, but uh, I'm a native of Detroit, and uh, early on, uh, my mother, single mother, we lived with my grandparents in on the northwest side of Detroit. And, of course, with all the things that go along with um, being in a big city urban environment, uh, that was part of my early exposure. But one of the things I appreciated about my mother and my grandparents, for that matter, they were always conscious of what was happening with my brother and me. I have a a brother who's a year younger. In fact, his birthday was yesterday. Um, But they were always paying attention and and making sure that they were supplementing things that weren't missing, that things that were missing with uh, things that we needed along the way. So I can remember always being exposed to um, just everything from art classes to traveling to uh, meeting people in position, mm-hmm. you know, my grandparents, mother, they always had us out somewhere. So we weren't locked into just the tiny neighborhood uh, mm. that, that we lived in. That's phenomenal. My mother had uh, just godly wisdom, knowing that if uh, my brother and I were going to have a, a fighting chance, we needed to move out of the city. So she actually picked up uh, and, and we moved to the Atlanta, Georgia area. She didn't know anybody, didn't have a job. She just picked up and went and said, I'm going to uh, try something new. And I think even with that, you know, that has been such a great impression on me, the risk and the willingness to step out and trust yes. God. Um, so we did that. And so when we got to Atlanta, the apartment complex that we landed in, uh, my mother did eventually find actually not one job, not two jobs, but three jobs. Okay. She worked three jobs. Yet another on. picture imprinted upon uh, your absolutely. multi-educated uh, soul. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The apartment complex we landed in was a complex and uh, maybe a few hundred units. Um, a good percentage, I would say even as high as 30% or so of the families there were single mother households. And so there was this great community of all of the kids from those houses who were in a similar place experiencing similar things. But here's what really just blessed me and still blesses me to this day. The elementary school that served this uh, particular community, half of the teachers were African-American male. Unbelievable. That's unheard of, right? Uh, and, and on top of that, all of these men were godly men. They were sub- Sunday school teachers on the weekend. All of these men were athletics, so they were coaches, and they you know, taught us athletics. All of them had multiple degrees, and so they were smart, they were athletic, they were funny, they were spiritual, they were everything that when I consider what it means to be a black man, mm. I saw that mm. early on. And so that... Uh, to a large degree, really did uh, shape who I am and and what I do. So again, motherful enough to get us in a place where all of the gaps were filled and the community was strong enough to be able to support that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that's my early experience. Keep going. I want to keep. We want to keep hearing it. So from there, uh, well, from there, uh, my mother who, um, again, moved to Atlanta, no job, ended up getting three part-time, no, two full-time jobs and one part-time job. I don't know how she did to this day. Uh, So we were latchkey kids, but, oh, my God, what that taught us was, you know, to this day, I do the cooking in my house. I do, you know, a lot of the quote-unquote duties, household duties, because that's just how I grew up. You know, it's like, okay, mom's not here, but mom taught us how to do everything we needed to do from cooking to cleaning to preparing to whatever. So that's been a part of my early experience. So my mother um, worked to the point where she landed a new job with a nationwide company 
in Atlanta. And about a year after she got there, they were considering uh, going out of business. And she said, well, hey, why don't you let me buy the company from you? And so from no job to owning a business, and so all through high school, my brother and I uh, worked as entrepreneurs with my mother in this uh, shop in Atlanta. And so that also became very, very formative. Um, you want me to keep going? Oh, yeah. Uh, but it, it wasn't always rosy. So beginning of my senior year, I had not really reckoned with um, just the very spiritual root of fatherhood, even though my father was not there. I had maybe seen him a couple times over those years. And um, my senior, beginning of my senior year, he died. We learned that he uh, had a heart attack, 46 years old, died, heart attack. Wow. And that just shook me. And, of course, mm-hmm. at that age, yes. I had no concept of what was going on right. with me. I missed probably close to two months of school where I would uh, go in one door and out the other mm. and not really understanding what was going on with me. Now, mind you, I'm um, uh, on the football team. I'm in AP classes, physics and calculus and English literature. So I'm a smart kid. I've got close to a 4.0. And even though I was a, a good kid, popular kid, well-liked Um, they talked about not letting me graduate. Uh, At the same time, I had a full scholarship to Ohio State, so that made it even worse. That I'm like, okay, why am I even bothering going to school? Mm. I'm just messed up, and I've already, you know, I know where I'm going. This is old. So, um, praise God, I I was able to uh, graduate. I had actually some of those early teachers from elementary school uh, advocate for me and we were able to work through wow. uh, the issues. Wow. So uh, my mother uh, drove me up to OSU. Uh, we're in this car, and uh, again, just I, I see the grace of God appearing mm. so many ways. We had a flat tire halfway up <laughs> in the hills of uh, oh Tennessee. Oh. No spare. Car was packed. Whoa. And... Yeah, God sent a, a nice family to stop and help us on our way, and so we did make it up. And to this day, I still don't even realize what it meant for my single mother then would have to turn yes. around and go back home in that same car for nine hours. Um, just, you know, phenomenal. Yes. But anyway, yes. so I came up to OSU, uh, uh, got involved in the life as a freshman, this humongous school of mm. 50 plus thousand yeah. people and here I was a kid um, I was lost I'll yeah. just be honest with you and so lost that I flunked out uh, by the third quarter of mm. that freshman year yeah lost my scholarship and uh, you know just the shame and the guilt on top of the failure what that meant uh, because I knew it would break my mother's heart. Well, was it tied at all to, I'm still a little bit stuck, as you can imagine I might be, uh, on your senior year and the loss of dad and being able to really not process that. And so let's talk about the idea of a relational refugee. Do you think that his death made that more real to you? I do. Okay, and that that is what was part of what was in the background for you at OSU, and then you go to 50,000 people? I do, and more than that. I mean, even through high school, I was a nerdy kid, smart kid, but not nerdy enough to fit with the nerds. I was athletic enough. I was going to say, you're on the football team, so. To play varsity football, but not athletic enough to fit with the jocks. Uh I was, you know, semi-personable, so, you know, I I meshed well with the nobody crowd, but I didn't even fit there. So even in those years, I didn't fit. Mm. When I got to OSU, here I'm a a skinny black kid from 
Georgia at this Midwest school that is predominantly white. Mm-hmm. All my sweet mates in the towers were white from, you know, these towns in Ohio mm. did not fit. Mm. I was smart, but not disciplined enough to uh, get the work done. So I really didn't fit academically. Um, I didn't have the support system. At, you know, again, this big school, mm. just another number. Ah. So I had nothing there. All I've ever had was mom, my brother, and uh, didn't fit. So yeah, with loss of father, but also just the reality of not having a place. Mm. I mean, geographically. So I'm transplant from Detroit, and yeah. you know, the folks down there said, "Well, you." talk funny because you're from the north yeah. and then when I got up to OSU you talk funny because you know I had a little southern twang yeah. for a minute didn't fit yeah. right all of that plays in uh, relationally and every other way okay so where is the Lord in all of this in terms of your spiritual journey and relational refugee to this point that we're talking about more of the same uh I was reflecting even after we talked um last week uh Early on, one of the churches my mother, uh, my brother and I went to was a Presbyterian church, predominantly black Presbyterian church in Georgia. But, uh, you know, about Presbyterians, they tend to be upper middle class and beyond, which we were not. So our family didn't fit there. I don't know why my mother landed there, but we did for a season. One of the jobs that she landed was at an AME church as a secretary, church secretary. So we then went there, and that's where I really started to develop a a faith. I I should have mentioned, too, that in Detroit, um, my grandmother was a seamstress for all of the Motown choirs of that day. So I tagged along to all of these Baptists and Church of God in Christ churches and, and I heard the music and I was steeped in that early on, right? Didn't have that in Atlanta. That was a different feel, but then went to the AME church and that was a highly liturgical African Methodist Episcopal church. Mm. And so I got a little taste of, of, uh, that. Um, so even early I had exposure to a number of different traditions and expressions of, of the faith, but still, personally, I, I hadn't really digested. I was ingesting a whole lot, but I hadn't really digested mm. um, what that meant. So when I got to college, you know, I was, of course, off the rails like most kids and didn't think um, a thing about it. The year that I flunked out, I, I can remember to this day, Easter Sunday morning, uh, my friend at OSU said, uh, man, let's go to church. It's Easter. We had been out drinking all night. And <laughs> so, you know, sunrise rolled around and we're setting for this church. And I'll fast forward a bit, but Mount Olivet Baptist Church was the church where we went for the service, which I knew nothing about. Well, listeners, that's a church that Kevin it's has been serving in. Serving. It's a church where I was <laughs> ordained later. Only God. At that time, neither one of us were thinking about the Lord. We went to church. He's a preacher, pastor now. I was preacher, pastor. <laughs> so yeah, God was up to something. Thank even you, in that. That's amazing. So yeah, off the rails in college and mm. just, you know, I lost it when paying attention. After graduating, uh, because I did end up at Franklin and uh, made it through that business degree, went back to Atlanta, and that's when I started to really develop a, a hunger for the things of God and, and the people of God. And I didn't, you know, know everything that was going on there, but so it got so intense, and I was so hungry that I started attending Bible studies and worship services all over the city. So. Monday night, I'd be at the Church of Christ in their Bible study. And Tuesday night, I'd be at the Word of Faith Church in their Bible study. And Wednesday night, I'd be at the Baptist Church in their Bible study. And it study. didn't matter if they were black or white matter. or I whatever. Was just, I was all over the place, but mm. I was soaking up so much. Mm. And even then, I didn't know I had a, an academic bent. But I was always wrestling with, okay, there's got to be more to this. I mean, wow. this is good, but there's got to be more mm-hmm. to this. And so... 
that became a part of my uh, experience. Landed at a, a Baptist church and um, started teaching uh, youth Bible study while I was there and wrestling with, with faith. And, uh, and I didn't rec- recognize it then, but wrestling with call at the same time. I knew you know, God had claimed me, but I wasn't sure what that meant. Um, and, you know, I'm just growing. My head is getting bigger and bigger, not in the pride sense, but just it was filling up and my mm-hmm. spirit was filling up. Of, mm. um, I was going through books like crazy and um, I, I uh, yeah, so more and more and more mm-hmm. and more, right? Um, during that time, I had, you were asking me about faith, but I want to kind of tie in mm-hmm. vocation yeah. and occupation too. Yes, for sure. I had been working again in our family business. I started teaching second grade uh, at the same time as well. And because of our business relationships, I also had relationship with uh, many of the politicians and city leaders in College Park, uh, Georgia. And um, the chief of police comes in our shop one day and says, hey, uh, Kevin, I've got a spot in the police academy. You interested in going? And I said, I, I never thought about it, but why not? You know, uh, don't fit anywhere else. So let's try it. So I, I did go to police academy and graduated there and started um, working in law enforcement. Ended up landing a, an additional job as a resource officer in the school where I graduated uh, high school. Incredible. Um, and so I had a chance to give back to uh, the kids that yeah. were there while I was also teaching this Bible study to kids in the church. So I just started to nurture. God started to just develop in me mm. a love for, for people. And um, I did that for, for a season, but there were a couple of law enforcement-related events that really started to shift, I think, um, me vocationally. Um, one... I'd arrived to the school uh, early morning, and it was before I had strapped up and got set. And I walked in the door, and I hear on my radio, uh, Officer Dudley, there's a kid in the kitchen with a knife. Please go check it out. So I walk in the school cafeteria, and I see this um, middle school kid Mm -hmm. charging out. He had gone in the kitchen, got a big, long, probably 14-inch knife, Mm -hmm. and he was charging about to try to kill another kid. I was able to uh, intervene, wrestle him to the ground, get the knife, and I did have my cuffs, so I put cuffs on him. But I said, Lord, if I would have had my gun, I would have had to kill him. Because you just, edged weapons are more dangerous than firearms in that scenario. So that was a, a grace, but what it did for me also was just to say to me internally, um, God, had some things that he wanted to do with me. Um, oh, wow, yeah. Probably a month later, I was uh, on a beat with the College Park Police Department. Uh, beat was normally 6 a.m., I'm sorry, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., so we worked 12-hour shifts. And my partner and I got a call that there was a guy wielding another guy with a knife. Uh, you know, got called to go check it out. And so we did go. And despite the orders... Um, to uh, stop and, you know, put the knife down. He charged my partner. My partner ended up shooting him. And uh, as he's lying on the ground dying, um, the very first question, my partner turns to me and says, Kevin, am I going to hell? You know, one of those Damascus Road kind of things. But in that moment, uh, I decided, Lord, I want to, spend my whole life being able to answer that question. So I'd been chewing up all this stuff of God, and now, you know, I ended up quitting my job. We relocated back to Columbus so I could start seminary and start down that track. So it's always been a very gradual process, I think, that the Lord has been working on me and in me with some glimpses of some very clear shifts and what I was to be about. Incredible. God's through lines in your life are so obvious. 
there are so there are three discernible through lines in the few minutes of the story that you've told us, the the glimpses that you've given us. And I think that's such a good word for us. That's such a good picture for us Mm. is that God will continue his through line if we listen and move with him. Mm. I mean, and the through line is so fun in some regards to where we see the Mount Olivet stories, (laughs) which is, you know, we kind of walk into a, Church, maybe a little bit hungover, and look at what God does. Look at what God. Look can. at what God does. That we get to be back there preaching and leading and complete and beautiful sobriety That's and amazing. maturity. You know, and and so I just am hoping somebody is excited to continue, even young listeners, to continue to think about God. What are the maybe seeds that you've planted in me that would someday be a through line that might encircle in the same way that I can see Kevin's, you know, even he's not old yet, but even the through lines in his life in those ways. That's good. And to know that we are claimed even when we don't know it. Yeah. To know that God is orchestrating some things that it's not until we look back we can see in retrospect how they all piece together right yeah right it's amazing right and so i you know it's so obvious as you talk why relational refugee when you heard that phrase sort of grabbed your soul and you said that's it Mm -hmm. that's been a pushing and pulling force in my life the whole time i have been alive it's been god it's been my own biological fatherlessness it's been the death of that man it's been my own status as an African-American who fits nowhere, fits here. Yes, he does. No, he doesn't. Who fits in this uh, community of faith and kind of doesn't. I mean, it's phenomenal. So it's clear your own identification with that phrase has given you the fire and the passion to work hard to challenge Christians to pour back into communities where ones who are relational refugees and they don't even know they are. Right. To, for Christians, you're calling us, help mentor and equip in these areas where cultural, structural relationships normally and naturally would be there and they're not. Christians, see the gap, step into the gap. That's yes. what I believe you're teaching us by your life and by your words and obviously by the ministry of Catalyst. Yeah, so can you talk to us about this? Yeah, it all kind of fits together. And I, I think I, I need to say very clearly that the the sovereignty of God uh, behind everything that we do and everything that we are is what uh, drives all of this. But because all of us are unique and God deals with us differently, when we can finally settle into the place that we're okay with who we are, we're okay with where we've been, and we can trust that the Lord is leading us into spaces and places that match who God has made us to be. That's when it really starts to uh, become just wonderful and amazing. And Come so on. For Listener, me, stop and replay that. <laughs> Literally stop and replay that last 30 seconds like 14 times. That was amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. So true. Um. The work that I'm uh, doing with Catalyst in many ways is tailor-made for people like me that don't fit anywhere. Uh, Because actually the biblical theological term for that is peacemaker, right? Peacemakers, uh, Beatitudes tell us, shall be called children of God, right? Belong. Peacemakers necessarily have to be well-versed in multiple contexts because they have to bridge the gaps. Peacemakers have to be okay with not fitting because it's in the margins that they fit. Um, Peacemakers have to be able to speak multiple languages and uh, have to understand and appreciate multiple cultures and contexts and Peacemakers have to be able to find the beauty and the value and the dignity and the worth of difference and diversity and to see how it all has to fit together for the sake of unity. 
that's who God has made me and others, you know, and all of those who were drawing into this uh, space for this wonderful work. And again, especially in the season that our nation happens to be in yeah. right now, God knows we need peacemakers to be raised up. Mm. Um, it's, it's so critical because our human, fleshly, yea, even demonic tendency is to retreat to our trenches of self yes. and collective selves, whether it's a political label or an ideology or you know, a particular experience or a particular viewpoint. The body of Christ cannot afford, if we are children of God, we can't afford to retreat into those spaces. We have to enter the margins mm. and bridge all the gaps and bridge the differences and distinctions and diversities. Not that any place that anybody stands is less than or is less meaningful than anybody else's, but the power of what we can do together and who we can be together is what this world needs to see. And if the church can't get it right. Right. So all the more reason when I, I look at, you know, we have what, some maybe 1,200 congregations in central Ohio, maybe 600 or so of those would be considered evangelical types. A um, lot of distinction, diversity, racially, geographically, denominationally, and all of that. We've got to work together. We've got to move together. We've got to be together. Well, Somebody has to be in the midst of all of that, paying attention um, to what the the bigger picture can look like, and to to honor what people are doing locally and in their respective congregations. But then to invite folks in to a bigger space to say, "This is what God can do mm-hmm. if we would all just come to the table, mm-hmm. lay down our." Petty Lay it down. ideas Lay it down. of what things ought to be Lay from it down. our perspective. Lay it down. Um, uh, there's no way we can keep saying Jesus is Lord when we occupy the God seat. Mm-hmm. Lay it down. Mm-hmm. So that's our that's our charge, our burden, our work is to help the body of Christ see that we are one mm-hmm. and to grow to a maturity in our diversity so that we can demonstrate to the watching world that we don't have to follow what the culture is doing. Yeah. And I don't mean to get political here, but oh my God, this is a crazy year. Yes. And when we get to November, no matter what happens, it's yes. going to be crazy. Oh, yes. Where is the body of Christ? Yes, please. Yeah. Will we line up with the particular political party or a particular ideology or will we say no we are counter countercultural we are the body of christ we're different we're set apart we're called out ones we have to be that mm-hmm. so uh, don't get me on my rant and rave <laughs> <laughs> it's good it's good these are unprecedented times and I think God is clearly well Isaiah 43 19 he's put on my mind and my heart so much see I'm doing a new thing Mm -hmm. do you not perceive it Mm -hmm. and I'm asking God would you help us perceive it Mm -hmm. well I'm going to turn the bus a little bit if you don't mind no more surprise cookies which by the way (laughs) listeners he's not yet taken a bite that's right I'm not going to do it I'm not going to do it his passion for the ministry is winning (laughs) So that is good news to us that we can likewise overcome our addiction for at least a moment. But Kevin, clearly you're a highly driven person. And um, I think that's a great picture for lots of folks who, you know, sometimes the ambition gets the, I don't know how to say it, it gets a bad rap, right? So I want you to just for a second talk about how much or how did you realize that this maybe relational refugee energy is a part of your ambition, your drive, your push to success or an achievement at the highest levels. Have you ever mm-hmm. realized that as part of that energy? Did you realize that? Just talk about that as some fuel to your drivenness or achievement. 
Yeah, it it really wasn't until later that I really uh, could put language to and could articulate what was really going on. I guess the deck, though, for me is stacked because I've always been uh, an introvert, an internal processor. So by nature, I'm paying attention to what's happening on the inside of me. Um, And so because of that, maybe I've been hyper-conscious of the ways that um, the episodes and experiences in my life have, have played into but I think it's, number one, being aware of what's going on. It, it's been gradual, but again, I, I get it honest. Um, but then awareness has to lead to a place where we can begin to check some of those very unhealthy tendencies. So my natural tendency as a relational refugee is to be more comfortable when I pull away and, you know, I don't have to see anybody. I tell my wife all the time, I can go live on a mountain, <laughs> give me a book, I'm cool. Me and Jesus, I don't need anybody, right? Well, um, that's so selfish. So, I, you know, checking my own self-centeredness because I am so comfortable with myself um, is a challenge where others may see that... Um, you know, because they're so accustomed to being around people, the opposite uh, may be true. But but being aware of that, but then being willing to engage the broken places and to be honest mm-hmm. with ourselves, yeah. to be self-critical and to be open is very important. To trusted people to be able to speak into our lives because we all have blind spots yeah. too. So all throughout my journey, I've had... Um, people God has placed in my pathway to either check me or assist me Mm. where needed. Um, I've always had that. Here is just another, with your counselor hat on, (laughs) the other danger for me uh, with the fatherlessness thing is, you know, always trying to attach myself to a daddy figure. So I've always been conscious of that and not tried to impose on anybody that role that God alone has served uh, for me. So, But again, being aware of that and being aware enough that I can check that yes. has always been a part yes. um, of my story. But we need community. We need trusted people yes. to yes. tell us the truth, right? My whole standard of ethics is about grace giving and truth telling. Mm. You have to have both of those with mm. uh, people. Um, otherwise, we will just you know stay in our own little world, yeah. and uh, we'll miss the wonderful things that God is is trying to do. That's great. Yeah. That's great. So yeah, you know, uh, this is. I'm so thankful for you bringing this concept of relational refugee to us today. Um, and I and I know that listeners have attached to many different aspects of our conversation. And so just however it's hit you, listener, um, I know you have your own experience of it. My experience uh, is similar to the idea of fatherlessness, but it's motherlessness. And my own experience of my mom uh, leaving our family when I was 11. And so, yeah. What those kind of abandonments do is they set in motion this sort of refugee homelessness status. Like, where's home? Home being that that, that place of settledness of soul, that place of safety, that place where I am, I can not have to be in charge of myself. Mm-hmm. And so th- then what happens is we do things like uh, catch the smile from our brownie troop leader or our Girl Scout troop leader mm-hmm. uh, or get the A-plus from, you know, our Spanish teacher and realize, oh, that feels good. And that sort of is a drop in the bucket mm-hmm. of that space where the mother space was. And then, therefore, there's how Tammy Smith becomes driven, uh, a person that moves towards achievement and drivenness. And, and you heard Kevin's version of it. And so what happens is, as Kevin said, when you can become aware of it, then it needs not drive you. But unless you can become aware of it, 
then it can be driving you and you not realizing you're being pushed by something and that is not life. And so this idea maybe is new to some of you, that you are in some ways a relational refugee and you haven't realized you're trying to get something that can't fit in a space that you're trying to get it to fit into. For those of you that are familiar with soul healing, that's obviously chapter three. And uh, you're thinking vets, and you're thinking you're remembering how you threw the book across the room. Love ya. We're all in there together. (laughs) For some of you, you might be realizing, wait a minute, this is the longing that I have. And I want to be clear. We all have a longing that is for our true home. God has put that in us. That in this world, we will always feel like we're sleeping on our not best bed. Like, I, I, where's, my, where's my favorite bed? <laughs> mm-hmm. That that's our longing for heaven that keeps us feeling like temporary residents and for, foreigners, like it says in 1 Peter 2.11 or in 1 Chronicles 29.15, that it says, you know, to you, we are all like our ancestors. And it, and it calls us foreigners without permanent homes. Hmm. And it says in that uh, passage, it says, our days are as fleeting as shadows on the ground. Yeah. And I think we have to remember that, that when we're looking for true and full, you know, true and complete fulfillment here on this earth, wait a minute, what are we doing? The Lord has told us very clearly, this is not your final home. This is not your complete fulfillment. So don't forget that there is a part of you that will always feel a bit like a refugee, Because that is the part that is meant for the eternity for which he created us, right? So let's not get those confused. But there is, for some of us, uh, an undone need circling round and round in us, asking for satiation. And, you know, we have to answer it with also God's answer, right? That you're no longer a relational refugee in Christ. Thank you, Lord. Yes, But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. And so in that space where God has met me intimately, and I know that God has met Kevin intimately, and for all you who call him Savior and have a relational refugee status in any way, shape, or form, he says, you are mine. He'll meet us there. He's been my great mother in ways that I could never have imagined. He's mothered me beautifully. Right? He says, he says, listen, there's nothing that's going to separate you from my care for you, from my intimate love for you. Neither height nor depth, nor angel nor demon, neither the present nor the future. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Maybe that's what you need to hear and say over and over and over and over again until it starts to sink into that place where you feel like a refugee all the time. He's my home. He's my resting place. He's my security. And it's that, you know, that 14 seconds that I told you to, or that 30 seconds that I told you to play back over and over again, 14 times of what Kevin said, that's what he's saying. We have to find our security in Christ. We have to. And that's how we move forward in strength. So, yeah, we've got to live there. And then what happens as we understand the various reasons we feel like relational refugees and the various realities about being relational refugees, right? That there is one place that we go that we are not a refugee status ever because of what he's done and what he will continue to do until we see him face to face. So that's a good news. That's a good place to live from. That's the real place to live from. That is the place to live from. So Kevin, I know you're a systems thinker. You told me this. I'm married to one of them too. Ah, you people are always seeing the inconsistencies. So you told me about how that drove you, and we got to listen to your story. It drove you to seek out a wide variety of approaches to the word, and it still makes you, I see it, ecumenically, excuse me, versed, sensitive, and it it makes diversity hardwired in you. Yes, yes. I love that. I love it. 
I love that kind of breadth in a person. It's, and it's also one of the greatest blessings in my life personally, that God does give me the opportunity to interact with all types of followers. Mm-hmm. I love it that one night I'm getting to sit with the folks who uh, exercise all of the gifts. And the next morning I'm with um, some folks who don't believe in those positions on the gifts. It's, 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 I love that. Yes. I love that. Um, so I am in awe of how many theological approaches God got in you when you were young, so to speak, and how that's paid off in the work across denominations and churches of all kinds that you are regularly in right now. So I'm honoring that through line of God in your life. So to the point that we're at today, where does God have your analytical mind with how the church can best intersect the culture and this crescendoed awareness of racial issues these past couple of months? Yeah. One the one of the most prominent points of heartbreak for me is that I'm not sure that we truly know how to honor one another um, in a way that is necessary. And so when we, we fail to honor just the dignity and worth and value of one another, it's hard to listen to anybody. Hmm. You know, um, and I, again, I don't want to go off into this, but the reason why uh, the death of George Floyd was so horrific is because he was just deemed not human at all. And while that is so blatant and visible and obvious, dare I say that believers are doing it every day. You know, I never forget I was uh, preaching in a uh, white evangelical church. Uh, this is recent, last year. And um, I, as a black man in this church, dared to have a perspective that didn't mesh well with the people there. And uh, I got so much flack. It, it, for me, it wasn't just that they disagreed with my viewpoint. It was that they didn't value and honor me enough that I could have a viewpoint that was different. And I, I see that played out in subtle ways. And again, if, if we as the church can't acknowledge that, be aware of that, and check that, and that only comes by being an honest, authentic relationship with somebody who thinks different, right? So if I'm always with people who are just like me, yeah, of course, echo chamber. But it's only when we're confronted with a diversity and have the nerve, the unmitigated goal to give honor to somebody who may not agree with me and may not mm-hmm. think like me, um, as though anybody has a monopoly on truth. That's right. you know, my other pet peeve of folks right. who think they just have God's truth on lockdown. Yeah. No, it's when we come together. And right. I'll be honest with you, the only thing I am absolutely sure about is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God the Son, died for our sin. I'd, everything else, hey, we can negotiate, we can talk Come about. on, come on. I may have ideas about speaking in tongues or ways of baptism, but who cares? I, I don't mean that right. flippantly. Right. Can I acknowledge that because I didn't make you a sister or brother in Christ, I can't deny you that. That's God's call. So because we're different, let's, let's work on that together. So um, that's, that's, for me, the pressure point right now. And we um, just introduced a statement of the gospel to help unify the church. And even with the statement of the gospel, I'm already getting feedback from folks who are saying, well, that, you know, that's not the gospel. Well, okay. Can we find a common ground to come together? Uh, since you say it can't be the gospel, can it be Jesus then? And I don't know which Jesus you worship, so maybe even your version of Jesus doesn't fit. Uh, but those are the, that's the hard work yep. of peacemaking. Yes, yes. That every day I'm tempted to say, excuse my French, to hell with y'all. Let me just go over here and work with these people who can receive it. But then God says, no. Nope. Yep. Yep. No. Nope. Yep. I've uniquely equipped you and placed you 
keep it. Yep. Yep. So let's walk this out yeah, together. That's so good. That's so good. Well, to that end, what is the biggest message that you have to white Christian people right now? And similarly, what's the biggest message you have to black Christians you know right now? It's actually the same message. Um, lay down your idols and let God be God. Um, America is not your God. Mm. The flag is not your God. Political party is not your God. Ideology is not your God. Wounding and experience is not your God. Come on. God is God. Mm. So let's stop worshiping at the altars of these idols and let's let God be God. Yeah. That'll preach. <laughs> she says to the preacher. Uh, you're a preacher. Yeah. <laughs> So, dear listener, I want to tell you that even though uh, Kevin and I have talked uh, about Catalyst, which is, you know, an Ohio particular to Columbus ministry, that there are certainly those kinds of ministries in your city as well. So make sure you find them based upon God's movement in you. Um, yeah, and certainly if you need help in those directions, and particularly if you're in the Columbus or Ohio um, region, uh, reach out to Kevin, reach out to Catalyst, and because uh, the work of the body of Christ and unifying churches is massive and is critical for such a time as this. And so certainly they would work to get you connected as best they could wherever you are uh, at the sound of my voice. And so I want to encourage you that way. Um, so yeah, Kevin, I want to ask you if you have any parting words for the listeners as you consider just all the places the Holy Spirit has led our conversation today. And we are just so thankful for you. Well, I'm grateful. And, uh, every day let's, let's give thanks for one another and, uh, see what God will do when we come together. So That's thank so you good. for having me. Oh my gosh. Just wonderful. What a privilege. Thank you so much for giving all of us, uh, the time. So to the listener, I just want to remind you that whether you feel acute pain when you hear the phrase relational refugee, or whether that's just sort of an idea that you might explore, or that it's just a fascinating concept, whether you are uh, a person whose ethnicity has caused you to very much identify with it and you are feeling the grief of it all over again today. If you are a person who has a cochlear implant and you're thinking about how you are neither part, you feel neither part of the hearing community nor the hearing impaired community, whether you are a person who looks like a certain ethnicity and yet you are reared in a foreign country, so you're a third world country, so to speak, and a first world person Whoever you are, wherever you are, if you feel like a relational refugee, I want to remind you, you belong to Christ. He made you for his own. You belong. You have a home. You have a home in him. There is a place where there is security and there is fullness. And that place is a place where you have to find it, uh, meeting him in your spirit, it's not going to be found in a tangible, external way. He'll give you places where he gives you times of refreshment and people who are road signs pointing to himself and dispensers of his grace and mercy along the way. But he'll meet you. And so I pray for you. I pray for all of us, Jesus, that we would know you as the true home that you are, that, Father, you would so guide all of us by your spirit to continue to find you as our true rest as our true security, as our true identity, as our true place where we say, you are my home. And in the meantime, Lord, would you continue to show us our idolatrous pursuits of how we just so want home other places. I want it to be somewhere that makes me feel kind of decent out here in, in view of others. I kind of want it to be a place that feels kind of decent in these ways that feel comfortable. And I enjoy these comforts. Lord, would you help us to lay down those idolatrous ways that we seek home externally. 
God, thank you so much for this beautiful conversation with this beautiful man and his beautiful story that you have so beautifully woven and how you have so beautifully chosen to glorify yourself through him. I pray more protection on him all the more in these days and the days ahead as you've continued to hone and refine the call in his life. I pray for provision in every way. I pray for protection in the mighty and strong name of Jesus, and I pray for an outpouring of just all that he needs in discernment and wisdom and just continue, God, this incredible gifting of discernment. I sense a wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove spirit on him. I pray just more and more that he would just know when and how to speak as he does and when it is useless to speak and just all of that, Lord. Thank you for his leadership. Would you give him just all that he needs to continue to lead and guide many to unity, many that will be even surprised that they're guided to the levels of unity that they're guided to for your name's sake, God. So we just thank you for this wonderful time together. In Jesus' name, amen.